0: Hey Spook Squad listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to another week to listen to another episode. I just wanted to let you all know that we are now available on Apple Podcasts, so please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss another episode, because big stuff is coming. That being said, enjoy the show. It's Spook Squad with Dan. Hey, 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 Spook Squad listeners. Welcome to another sode. I am Dan, one half your Spook Squad host. And before we continue, I just want to say thank you to all the people who reached out to say kind words or shared the podcast on social media. Y'all are incredible. Thank you so much. We have so much fun stuff planned for you for this summer in particular. So please stick with us because it's going to be a wild ride. Alright, so moving on from that, let's get into the main topic of today's mini-sode, which I am also very excited to talk about. Today, we are going to be talking about Grindhouse Cinema. Oh, what an awesome topic. So, what do I mean when I'm talking about Grindhouse? Well, Grindhouse refers both to a type of kind of theater institution and also the types of films that are typically shown at that kind of establishment. Uh, And this is far from a new concept. I mean, the term grindhouse has roots that date back to like the 1920s, and essentially it's named after this grind policy that certain theaters would have. So back in like the 1920s, uh, the way that theaters were run is that they would try and limit the number of showings, and they would sell you tickets based on where you would sit. It's kind of like modern Broadway, right? But grind cinema would try to show as many films as they could over the course of a day, typically for very cheap and then ticket prices would increase over the course of the evening and that was kind of the way those institutions were run now film historians agree that there are three main criteria for what qualifies as a grindhouse cinema and those qualities are that they show a variety of films in continuous succession that they have low admission fees and that the films screened are frequently of poor quality or low artistic merit. And though some folks might argue at that last point, we're definitely talking about a specific type of film when we talk about grindhouse cinema, that's for sure. And it definitely means, uh, typically pretty violent and kinda sexualized as well. Now, I I think what's so enduring about this, the reason why there's such a mythos behind the kind of grindhouse cinema, is because they kind of have this reputation about them. They were associated with lower-class audiences, people who didn't have a lot of money. And Grindhouse Theaters kind of became perceived as disreputable establishments where you know they showed disreputable films controversial films and it, that 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 wasn't even true sometimes but it didn't matter these places already had these larger than life personas and kind of cultures developed around them i mean these places sometimes had double triple all-night bills sometimes on a single admission charge. One ticket price. And that encouraged people, hey, stay all night. Stay here all the time. Watch a bunch of movies. And it became a whole culture. Uh, not to mention the fun trailers that would play before these things. They would become the stuff of legend. Ultraviolent, really cheesy narration. Tons of one-liners to get the audience cheering and going. These places were fun, y'all. They were a ton of fun, if you ask me. But with the popularization of movie rentals in the 80s and the shot-on-video craze, which is a whole other episode... Uh, These places mostly declined in the 80s, much like drive-in cinema of old. In fact, there are a lot of parallels between classic drive-in cinema and what's known as grindhouse cinema, these classic exploitation films, as Joe Bob Briggs would call them. Shout out to Joe Bob Briggs. Um, Yeah, there are a lot of comparisons between the way the two cultures sort of faded, and uh, it really is a shame, but in similar fashions, uh, both are kind of romanticized today and uh, never was that romanticization uh, more obvious than in 2007 with Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez's Grindhouse with Rose McGowan and many 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 other people I highly recommend everyone check out this film Uh, we might do an episode on it in the future because there's a lot to talk about there. But long story short, uh, this was a double feature. So that meant one film written and directed by Robert Rodriguez of Spy Kids fame, yes, and one written and directed by Tarantino. And they were highly influenced by classic exploitation and grindhouse films. They were highly stylized, chock full of one-liners. It was all aesthetic. I mean, there was fake blood all over the place in these things. Tarantino in particular loved doing real stunts with this. That was kind of the whole point of his film. Uh, I mean, fun trailers for this thing. It was an incredible grindhouse film experience, complete with missing reels even. But it's that trailers point that's going to lead us to the next topic of discussion in our mini-sode. Hobo with A Shotgun, a modern grindhouse revival film that is absolutely worth checking out. So how did this film come to be? Well, it owes its existence to the 2007 grindhouse film, and here's the reason why. Uh, Remember earlier when I said how the trailers were a huge part of the grindhouse theater experience? Well, knowing this, Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino... Uh, started a competition uh, for independent filmmakers to submit the most ridiculous and outrageous Fake Grindhouse trailers to play before and in between their films. Kind of like the real Grindhouse experience. It was really cool. And a lot of people contributed to this. I mean, there was a trailer from Rob Zombie. There was a trailer from Eli Roth, which was actually really funny and well done. Uh, And then there was a trailer from Jason Eisner, this 20-something-year-old kid from Canada who shot this trailer with a $150 budget that mostly went to cigarettes and pizza for the main actor. But Tarantino saw it, and he loved it, and it won the competition and was included in the film, and the rest is history. The trailer went viral, like in the early days of things going viral, and before you know it, they had secured funding for a full-length, totally over-the-top Grindhouse revival film, and... I gotta tell y'all, it is a wild ride, and it's a lot of fun. This thing stars Rutger Hauer from Blade Runner, yes, and features the line, When life gives you razor blades, you make a baseball bat covered in razor blades. Oh, there is so much fun stuff to talk about with this movie. So, let's dig in a little bit. Just want to let everyone know before we move on, we are going to be getting into spoilers for this film. So, before we get into spoiler territory, what do you want to know before checking the film out? Here's what you know. This thing is outrageously bloody and violent with tons of ridiculous kill scenes, and it has a very grim outlook on the world, and yet this film is a roller coaster ride. It's fun, and it's not too grim, and maybe that's because of the way in which it's presented. This thing is presented in beautiful post-production technicolor, yes, you heard me right. Technicolor. The colors in this film are very bright and beautiful, and yes, blood looks crazy. Uh, It's a really interesting choice from director Jason Eisner, and I gotta say, it really works to give the film not only a unique vibe, but prevent things from ever feeling just too gritty to take. So my advice to you, if you're curious about this film and don't want it spoiled but want to check it out, just strap yourself into the roller coaster ride and have fun. Don't ask questions like, where does the hobo get all of his ammo from and he never seems to reload his shotgun? These sorts of questions are going to hinder your enjoyment of this film. You're really here for the one-liners. You're really here for the kills. You're really here for the aesthetic. And this film is full of aesthetic. It's highly stylized and it's all the better for it. So that's my advice before getting into it. Uh, everything after here is going to be spoiler territory. So let's just dive into the world of Hopetown from Hobo with a Shotgun. A world in which literally every single person seems to be either corrupt or being exploited or abused in some kind of way. This is a town in which the streets are vacated except with people basically committing crimes and run by a group of villains who like to do things like shove teenagers faces into a comically large pile of cocaine. We got corrupt cops, we got a pedophile Santa, and we got the ringleaders of the whole thing. A sociopathic mobster named Drake and his sons Ivan and Slick, all of whom have a ridiculous bloodlust. Uh, the characters in this thing are extremely broad, and honestly, that makes them really, really fun to watch because they play up the evil to a hilarious and ridiculous extent. Uh, similarly, uh, Ruckerhauer is great as the hobo. He's kind of like a badass, sort of corrupt anti-hero. Uh, everybody is doing a great job with their roles, and there's none of that kind of winking to the camera sort of stuff that was going on in Grindhouse, where... Where it kind of knows that it's cheesy. Uh, even though this film is definitely in the exploitation film ilk in that it is cheesy at certain moments, everything is played dead serious, and the film definitely is better because of it. But there is no shortage of laughs in this film, not just because of the ridiculous kills, but because of incredible one-liners like put the knife away or I'll use it to cut welfare checks from your rotten skin, and, of course, I'm going to wash this blood off with your blood uh pretty incredible and pretty unforgettable but uh, you know what i just can't talk about what makes this film so special without getting into the kill so yes indeed it is that time yet again time for the kill corner kill corner Ah, that never fails to make me happy. All right, so let's get into it, y'all. There are so many memorable kills in this movie that I think we're going to have to go for a top 10 countdown here. So let's just dive right in, starting at number 10 with a kill that occurs within the first seven minutes of the movie. And that's really why it's at number 10, because honestly, this is one of the most memorable kills in the film, y'all. I'm so excited to talk about it. We are talking, of course, about the barbed wire noose attached to the car. oh boy. Yes. So in the first seven minutes of this film, uh, one of the actors from Trailer Park Boys actually is uh, running away from Drake and the boys. And they do this really incredible thing to him. They, uh... Put him feet first in a manhole cover uh, in such a way that only his head is sticking out from the manhole cover. He's kind of stuck down there. At this point, a crowd is gathered around, and so uh, they put on a little show for them by attaching the aforementioned barbed wire noose to a very nice car revving the engine a bit as he screams and uh yeah his head just kind of pops off and it's like a fire hydrant i mean there's just a fountain of blood that pours up from this thing at which point one of drake's female henchmen starts like dancing in a sexy way as the blood pours all over her it is (laughs) Completely ridiculous and incredible. So quick story about this already incredible kill, and this is true. Uh, one of the extras uh, in the audience that day was actually a professional extra who had booked that gig before he was set to get surgery. What kind of surgery, you ask? Uh, eye corrective surgery. He was previously blind, and then he gained the ability to see. And one of the first things that he saw was this, the head being popped off, and the fountain of blood, and the sexy dancing, and uh, he just said it was extremely interesting that that was one of the first images he saw after being gifted with sight. (laughs) We should all be so lucky. Uh, Coming in hot at number nine, we're going to go to the arcade uh, when... Uh, Slick, uh, takes a young boy's arm, he puts it next to the joystick, and then kind of cracks it in the opposite direction of the joystick. Uh, it looks extremely gross, and it's really, really effective. Uh, kind of similar theme, we're gonna move on to number eight here. Gotta go with the Bumper Car Skull Crush. (laughs) This is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it's kind of like an indoor bumper car area, and two of the bumper cars are, like, headed towards each other for a direct impact and someone's head is stuck in the middle and it really just kind of pops uh, in it- It's a ridiculous image in a movie full of ridiculous images. So uh, coming in hot at number seven, uh, we got The Revenge for Eating Glass. This is a really, really good scene. So early in the film, there's this guy who's kind of like a filmmaker. I personally feel like it's kind of a commentary on uh, exploitation filmmaking in general, but it's kind of like a more intense version of Jackass. This guy has a handheld camera, and he's basically uh, paying people like $20 a pop here and there to like get punched in the face, like five. Five times in a row and he's filming the whole thing. Uh, Well, Our protagonist, the hobo, gets it particularly bad with this gentleman as he's attempting to get the money to buy his very special lawnmower, something that we haven't talked about. It's a very heartfelt thing in the movie. Uh, So to get the money for the lawnmower, uh, this gentleman makes the hobo eat glass. It's a really gross and really humiliating and effective scene. Uh, Needless to say, this gentleman gets his comeuppance later uh, as our hobo gets his shotgun. And boy, is it satisfying to see. So that makes our list at number seven. Uh, Number six, just going to shout it out real quick, the death of pedophile Santa. It had to happen. Uh, It was very, very satisfying. So RIP pedophile Santa, you will not be missed. Uh, Number five, we got the electrocuted ice skates. God, I love this kill. (laughs) It's actually not technically a kill because he lives, but Ivan, the other son, uh, he loves wearing ice skates and attacking people with them. Don't ask me, but he's stomping on the hobo's back at one point with these ice skates. And it is, oh, God, it's brutal to watch. But uh, the hobo takes a toaster and the ice skate falls into the toaster and you get that nice little (laughs) effect. And (laughs) it's uh, really, really awesome. Uh, I think his skin gets charred. (laughs) They really go all out in this film. Uh, Number four. Slick getting his penis shot off. Uh, it's just great. I mean, listen, you can call me immature if you want, but uh, it's a pretty hardcore death scene. Actually, it's way more sad than you expect it to be, but it's also just incredibly satisfying, especially considering how awful of a person Slick is. <laughs> Number three, uh, we get a montage of shotgun kills here, which is just, uh, you really got to see it to believe it. There are some Truly, truly disgusting deaths at the hand of the shotgun, and I love the way that everybody flies back into the air after being hit with the shotgun. It is clearly so powerful, and they really make the kills with the shotgun satisfying in this, so I gotta put in that shotgun montage at number three. Uh, Number two... uh, Our protagonist's best friend, Abby. Uh, We didn't get to talk about her a whole bunch this episode, but she's a wonderful character. Uh, Towards the end of the film, she gets her hands cut off, and uh, it's kind of like stumps of bone are exposed, and they're somewhat sharp, so she stabs Drake with the stubs of little sharp bones at the end of her hands. (laughs) It is... Woo! It is a hell of a time, y'all. But listen, coming in at number one, uh, if you've seen the movie, you got to know what it is. It is the flamethrower on the bus full of kids. Yes, this movie breaks one of the only rules of film in that it kills kids and director Jason Eisner said the movie would have been made two years earlier if it weren't for the inclusion of this scene in the film but he would not compromise his vision and it is a truly unforgettable scene y'all so Slick in trying to prove himself to his father and intimidate the hobo decides to send a message by kidnapping a bus full of school children and lighting them on fire with a flamethrower as if this wasn't bad enough The whole thing is scored to the soundtrack of Disco Inferno. It is unbelievably irreverent, and it's actually devastatingly sad, but the fact that this film goes to that place, I think, leaves an impression that we will not soon forget. Whew, hobo with the shotgun, I know, I know, it's serious. (laughs) Hobo with a shotgun, everybody. God, I love this movie. Ah, Okay, so before we end this week's episode, I have just one more thing to share with you guys. As some of you know, last week's episode was Intro to Extreme Cinema, and I said some stuff in that episode that I think I might change my mind about, but... In order to get into that, I think I'm going to need a little bit of help to introduce our new segment. So, to introduce this part of the podcast, please welcome the severed heads in my basement. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you, boss. Hey, take it away, boys. One, two, three. Change my mind. Well, thank you, Severed Heads. Uh, It continues to terrify me that you are in my home and can talk and sing. But that was actually really quite lovely and I appreciate it. So thank you. Uh, So that being said, yes, I actually do change my mind on something that I said last week, uh, specifically regarding what is and what is not extreme cinema. Uh, During that part of the minisode, uh, I definitively stated that The Human Centipede was not extreme cinema and that it was trying to be, but it fell short. Uh, Since then, I've kind of revisited this topic. I've talked with a couple people about extreme cinema and uh, especially folks who aren't really familiar with the genre. Uh, They look to the human centipede as kind of as bad as it gets in certain respects. And yes, they haven't seen stuff like a Serbian film, but I kind of feel like I should maybe respect their interpretations. Uh... Even more than that, I listened to this really crazy podcast conversation between Alec Baldwin and Tom Six, the director of Human Centipede. Uh, It was really weird. They were super buddy-buddy talking about how they had to make a movie together, and uh, Alec Baldwin just kept saying that Tom Six was extremely charming, and uh, he was. He was fairly charming on this episode, Uh, but he kept saying stuff like he was trying to redefine evil. And one story that he told in particular made me think, uh, maybe he kind of did that in some ways, particularly from Human Centipede 2. Uh, He was talking about filming a scene in which the second Human Centipede is created, and uh, this gentleman, this abuser, this guy who's created the centipede, uh, he wraps barbed wire around his penis and then begins to abuse the centipede. And the director said, while this was happening, he leapt from his chair. He was like screaming because it just looked so good to him. And he turned around and half the cast and people filming had walked away crying because they were so disturbed by what was happening before them. And I heard that story and I was like, uh guess that's pretty extreme all right so the human centipede counts as extreme cinema sorry guys i got that one wrong oh all right so that's gonna do it for us this week thank you so much for tuning in you guys it really really means a lot to us please subscribe and let us know if you enjoy the podcast and follow me on twitter for more updates thank you so much this is dan signing out